While you're doing that, we have time for four praises. One at a time. Your grandson, praise God for our grandson. Someone else. Yes. For family. Two more. For worship. Answered prayer. Amen. Amen. As we come to Revelation 17, we see what we're going to do is a historical account today of false religion. The title of the message is False Religion. Um, it is false religion at its peak, destruction of the false church, and ultimately um, the source of false religion being dealt with, being punished. Um, as we come to Revelation 17, so much of the world is rapidly running towards what we are studying in Revelation and the markings in the places where it's happening are very much Revelation 17. We'll refer to those a little bit throughout the message. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, as there has always been two cities on earth, um, Jerusalem and Babylon, um, one is a place where Christ himself met Abraham many years ago. And one is a place where false religion was born um, and has always derived itself from to the point where today many of them are called Christian religions, um, but they are much more false than true. Help us as we understand um, what has happened to lead to this moment and what your plan is for the false church. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to begin studying. I'm going to read a few verses beginning in Revelation 17. John is going to have the same questions that you probably have as we go through this chapter and they will be answered within the chapter. Revelation 17 and verse 1, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls that we studied last week came and said to me, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adultery. So we start there and we see this. We studied Revelation 13 several weeks ago now where we had a one-world religion, a one-world economy, and a one-world government, and how they all come together at the midpoint of the tribulation where there's going to be one economy, there's going to be one credit card. It's all going to have the same numbers on it, 666, and that will be the only way to purchase. It will be religion in that economy married to government finally and forever. The reason that people came to this land, at least people that you and I have descended from, was to get away from government-led churches. And government-led churches have always been, and they will always be. And at this point, we see the government being the Antichrist and his kingdom, and the false church, this prostitute, which has always been the language, Old Testament and New. Prostitution in the Bible is not usually a man with someone besides his wife who he is paying for, to have intimate relationship with, it is almost always religion. It is almost always something instead of God or something alongside of God that makes God jealous, that is given 
part of God's throne. So we see here the, the marriage between these three. We see the prostitute in verse 1. We see that at the end of verse 1, sits on many waters. This is, again, the waters are a picture of the, the pagan world, the, the turning against God. So in Revelation 13, we see the beast rise up out of the sea. We see in Revelation 21 and 22, there will be no seas in heaven, pointing metaphorically to false religions and world religions and world governments. And we see them come together here. Then in verse 2, the kings of the earth, the government joins with this false religion. The kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adultery. Reading on. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw the woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. So we see the description of this woman becoming available to us in this chapter. So we see this woman has incorporated ecumenism, which is a huge movement in the world. It's a movement in the United States. It's a movement in Mendota, Illinois. So we have in, in a small town like Mendota, we have about 14 churches. And we have within those 14 churches multiple different gospels. And they all accept and wear and are accepted Christianity as their title. So we see this ecumenical movement reaching its peak at the midpoint of the tribulation where this prostitute, this mother of all false religions, is sitting on a beast over many waters. She has joined the world together in one religion. And we see this description of this false church, and you have to realize that what we are seeing here could be in a decade and a half from today, meaning that this false religion is here now. This false religion calls itself Christianity, and this false religion will not survive, in other words, will not be caught up in the rapture. So it is a religion in the name of Christianity that will be left behind when the rapture happens, and it will be responsible for all religion in the first half of the tribulation and will be destroyed later in this chapter as we read. So the angel gives John this description. This woman is dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, so has this robe on. So picture a religion today where the leaders of the religion wear these robes that are scarlet and red and glittered with gold. And John, go, or the angel goes on, she held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. So you think of a religion that is common that we know about that the leaders come forward and they're wearing this robe and they hold a golden cup in their hand. And the 
abominable things are in this cup. Remember, the abomination that causes desolation will be the pinnacle of false religion, Revelation 13. So this is a religion that their worship ceremony focuses around a golden cup with abominable things in it that they will drink from during that worship service. Reading on, verse 5, the name written on her forehead was a mystery. Remember the definition of mystery is something that has always been true, always hidden in God, but is now revealed. So it won't be a mystery to us after we read this. Babylon, the great, the mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. So this is a religion, a church in the name of Christianity that has murdered Christians throughout its history and throughout the first half of the tribulation. So if we went to Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11, we would see the midpoint that we're focused on here. And we would see that the fifth seal is under the altar in heaven, the souls of those who have been beheaded for the name of Jesus Christ. John tells us here in Revelation 17 that those who have been beheaded in the first half were beheaded by this church, by this false church, that John is receiving this picture of this false church as we read here, reading on. Verse 6, I'll read the whole verse again. I saw the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and the beast she rides, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come out of the abyss and go to its destruction, describing the Antichrist and his kingdom. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. So you see in your notes there for verse 9, when John wrote this, and for a long time it is still referred to as, Rome is known as the city of seven hills. So you have the names of the seven hills there that preachers until the most recent generation, part of their theological training is to memorize the seven names of the seven hills in Rome. So, so far John has given us a description, or the angel has given it to John so that it can be given to us. It is a false religion. It is in the service, has a, a robe that is glittering with gold and scarlet and, and purple, and they, they hold a golden cup in their hand. And then John says, or the angel says to John, don't be astonished by this mystery. This false church sits in Rome. So he is explaining to John who the false church will be during the tribulation who will be, in the name of Christ Christianity or Christendom, killing people for the first half of the tribulation. And this false church 
is born, he told us earlier, out of Babylon. So let's go to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. We're going to do a, a fairly quick overview of false worship. So sin comes into existence on day one of creation when Satan, according to Ezekiel and according to Isaiah, determines, as he's created as Lucifer, almost immediately he determines it is not good enough to be a guardian cherub. I want to be like God. And he is immediately cast down. A third of the angels think he's the one to follow. A decision, a one-time decision by angels has been made. A third of all angels created are now demons. Lucifer is now Satan, and he is cast down to the earth, and he is in his purpose and existence from this moment on is to take beings made in the image of God, which he is not, and to lead them away from God by distorting what God says. False religion. So if you look at the first verse in the fall of man, Genesis 3 and verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, and this is what false religion says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Every religion, every falling away, every form of apostasy is some form of, did God really say, does he really command all people to repent? Did he really say that you have to follow him with your life? See, Satan is not foolish enough to say there's no God. He's not foolish enough to say that, for example, Jesus didn't die for your sins. But in Mendota, Illinois, in these 14 churches, you could ask every one of them, do you believe there is a God? Yes. Do you believe that God's Son created the earth? They would probably all say yes. Do you believe that he died on the cross to pay for your sins? And they would all say yes. And then if you ask them, if you stood before God and he had to ask you the question, why should I let you into my heaven, into my kingdom, you would probably have close to 14 different answers. Because somewhere along the way, someone said, this also is a good idea, denomination formed. This is what we think is a good idea, another denomination is formed. This is what we've concluded along with what God has already said. Another denomination is formed. And finally, people are saying, you know, did God really say, just like Eve and Adam were spoken to in the garden, turn to um, Genesis chapter 9 and verse 1. We go from 4,115 years before Christ, over 6,000 years ago in Genesis 3, to Noah coming off of the ark and be given, being given a covenant with God in Genesis chapter 9. And the first part of that covenant was a command, verse 1. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, 
be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. So the, the command is to be fruitful and to spread out, to cover the earth. So here you have a very small population of people. Um, it would be interesting to see exactly how many people were there, um, how quickly the families were formed. The three sons of um, Noah, for example, were on the ark with their wives for a, quite a while, uh, for a year, and they were um, a certain age by then. But the point is that the command is be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth. And in a very short time, as we turn to Genesis chapter 10, I want you to understand that chronologically, like the book of Revelation, these two chapters come together to tell a story. Um, so we have the table of the nations you probably have at the head of chapter 10 and verse 1. So there aren't nations until after the Tower of Babel. So we are being told who those nations are going to be. So those nations are going to descend from three people, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And here's who those people are. And then we are told the story of the Tower of Babel, which precedes those nations. So when we look, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 10, we're looking at the descendants of Ham, and making our way to the Tower of Babel. Verse 6, the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. So those are the four sons focused on here by Ham. And as we read through here, you will see almost every evil empire in the Bible descends from this son of Noah named Ham. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabtika. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush was the father of Nimrod. So around 2400 B.C., Cush, the son of Ham, who is the son of Noah, becomes the father of a man named Nimrod. Nimrod is the, the energy and the craftiness behind the Tower of Babel, behind all of the evil empires, Satan is clearly using him, if not possessing him, to start all of these things. All false religion trace, traces back to this real and mythical couple. The couple is Nimrod and Semiramis. Semiramis is to have had a child conceived of God, like an imitation of the true son being born on earth, and that son's name is Tammuz. So out of this relationship and out of this picture, you have a male false god, you have a female false god, and a child false god. And out of this, every, if you, whether it's, it goes from primarily Babylon to Egypt to Rome. So when you get to Rome, all of the things, including Tammuz, come from the Tower of Babel. So many of the things that are believed are things that have been carried from Babylon to Egypt, where the Jews were for 430 years, and then ultimately to Rome, which is the final kingdom that we study. So verse 8, 
Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on earth. He was mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Revelation 17, Uruk, Akkad, and Kalna in Shinar. Shinar is where the Tower of Babel was built. Verse 11, from that land he went to Assyria, the evil empire that Jonah was sent to that took down the northern kingdom of Israel, where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kela, and Rezin, which is between Nineveh and Kela, which is the great city. Egypt was the father of the Ludites, Anamites, Leavites, Naphtutites, Pathrushites, Kasluites, from whom the Philistines came, and the Kaphtorites. Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn, another baby-sacrificing, evil empire-worshipping false god. Sidon is firstborn, and of the Hittites, Jebusites. Jebusites are the people who occupied Jerusalem before David conquered it. The Amorites, evil people who sacrificed babies to false gods, Girgashites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, Ardvites, Zemorites, and Hamathites. Later, the Canaanite clans scattered, and the borders of Canaan reached from Sidon toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, and then toward Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, as far as Lachish. These are the sons of Ham by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. So what Moses is writing and recording here is that once the Tower of Babel is dealt with by God, all of the false empires that we read in the Old Testament are going to descend from Ham. And many of them, the capital cities of evil on earth, like Babylon, like Nineveh, like Sodom and Gomorrah, and like the country of Egypt, are going to be descendants of Nimrod and his followers. So Canaan and Cush. Now drop down to verse, chapter 11, verse 1. Now we're reading what happened before those peoples became nations. Remember the command from chapter 9 and verse 1, just a few years earlier when they came off of the ark, be fruitful and fill the earth. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain of Shinar and settled there. They've already decided we're not going to fill the earth. We're going to settle here. Verse 3. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth as they were commanded. Verse 5, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building, the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, 
then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, what he had originally told them to do on their own. And they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel. So the Tower of Babel means they were babbling in a sense. They could no longer speak to each other and understand and communicate to continue building. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So we see that immediately coming off of the ark, the people start moving eastward and they get to what is modern day Iraq and, and they, they find this plain and they say, let's settle here, let's build a tower, let's reach the heavens, let's make a name for ourselves, let's be our own gods. And God says, I'm not going to let you do that. So they're building what is called a ziggurat, which is a spiraling tower that starts out with a very large base and, and grows and grows as high as they can build it. And obviously they weren't going to reach heaven, but they were already doing it in their minds. They were already deciding that they were going to be their own gods. And we see basically that it's a very short time, if you look at the dates in your notes, from the ark to when this is happening, and if you drop down to chapter 10 and verse 25, you find probably the year of the Tower of Babel. Genesis 10 and verse 25, the two sons born to Eber, one was named Peleg because his time, because in his time when the earth was divided, his brother was named Jotan. So his name, Peleg, means division or divide. So it's very possible, it seems to be saying that this is when God dispersed the people. So if you go to Abraham's lineages in chapter 10 and chapter 11, you find out the year that is 300 years before Abraham that Peleg is born, meaning about 67 years after the ark, just a few generations where they were building the Tower of Babel. Now look in your notes down chapter 11 and verse 18. To get a picture of what Abraham was called away from. So they get off of the ark and they begin moving east and they come to a place where they think, let's build a city here, let's build a tower to God, let's reach the heavens and let's make a name for ourselves. God confuses them and they spread throughout the earth. 300 years later, Abraham is called from that same area. Meaning that the people who founded that territory of the Tower of Babel that stayed there, that never did leave, is the group of people that Abraham is born into. So the people who Joshua says were Abraham's family made idols and they worshiped false gods. So the people that were resolved to stay in the area of Mesopotamia and the area of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that's where Abraham comes from. So not 
three centuries after the Tower of Babel, it would have been a huge leap for Abraham to put faith in God enough to leave all of that behind. And we begin in chapter 11 and verse 18 to, to read that story. When Peleg lived 30 years, he became the father of Reu. And if you look down through these verses quickly, verse 20, when Reu was 32, verse 22, when Sarug was 30, we're, we're dating backwards. The Bible has dates from Adam to Christ. So we know that Adam was created 4,115 years before Christ. We know that Abraham, as we drop down to chapter 12, that's actually, let's look at verse 27 of chapter 11. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. While their father, Terah, was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans. So Ur is the territory near where the Tower of Babel was, in Babylon. So Abraham was a Chaldean. Nebuchadnezzar, who takes Daniel captive and takes down all of Judah in Babylon as their king, is a Chaldean just like Abraham. Verse 29, Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Ixah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot and Haran of Haran, and his daughter-in-law, Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. They're doing what Noah was told about four centuries earlier that most of the people did, but Abram's descendants did not. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Verse 32, Terah lived 205 years old, and he died in Haran. 12 and verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, go from the country, your, the country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. He's calling them out of this idol worshiping territory to get away from the idols to follow God. Verse 2, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Paul says this is the introduction of the gospel. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. So now we're 2,091 years before Christ when Abram leaves the idol-worshipping territory of Babylon and heads towards Canaan. Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 44. Jeremiah, and you see in your notes there, Ezekiel. Ezekiel is writing, he has dated what he is, we're going to read there, 592 B.C. We've leaped forward into the nation of Israel to the 6th century before Christ, and Jeremiah is writing this about the same time. So what has happened is 
God has brought them out of Egypt. They have a time of judges where everybody basically does what they want. They have a time of kings where there are some good kings and some bad kings. And they, Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom, all start reverting back to Babel. They start going back to the same things that they were doing at the Tower of Babel where Abraham was originally from. So in Jeremiah 44, as God is showing and explaining through Jeremiah what these people are doing, in Jerusalem, this is the people that Jesus descended from, this is why they went into captivity. Jeremiah 44 and verse 15 Then all the men who knew that their wives were burning incense to other gods, along with all the women who were present, a large assembly, and all the people living in lower and upper Egypt, they've gone back to worship the same gods that Egypt worshipped, who was a descendant of Ham, who came from the Tower of Babel. They said to Jeremiah, verse 16, We will not listen to the message you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord. We will certainly do everything we said we would do. We will burn incense to the queen of heaven. And I've witnessed to multiple people. um, Mary was made by the Catholic Church queen of heaven in 1954. And they will tell me, queen of heaven comes from the Bible. Yes, it does. And it's evil 100% of the time. So in false religion, it always makes its way back to Babylon. So in in that religion, we have Pontifex Maximus, who is the highest pontiff. Pontiff means pope. So he is the highest pontiff, which also means priest. The highest priest and the queen of heaven is the forming of that religion today, which is being described in Revelation 17. So in verse 17 here, We will certainly do everything we have said that we would. We will burn incense to the queen of heaven and we will pour out drink offerings to her just as we and our ancestors, our kings and our officials did in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. At that time, we had plenty of food and were well off and suffered no harm, which isn't true. Verse 18 But ever since we stopped burning incense to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have had nothing and have been perishing by the sword and famine. The women added, when we burned incense to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, did not our husbands know that we were making cakes impressed with her image and pouring out drink offerings to her? So this queen of heaven, this Semiramis, brought from Babylon to Egypt, where Israel was born, God said, never go back to Egypt. He commanded them. When Nebuchadnezzar starts pressing down on Jerusalem, they go back to Egypt, and Jeremiah is pleading with them, stop worshiping these gods. No, we're going to do exactly what we said we were going to do. We're going to burn incense. We're going to make cakes with the image of the queen of heaven. And we're going to worship there. Verse 20, then Jeremiah said to all the people, both men and women who were answering him, did not the Lord remember and call to mind the incense burned in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem by you and your ancestors, your kings and your officials and the people of the land? 
when the Lord could no longer endure your wicked actions and the detestable things you did, your land became a curse and a desolate waste without inhabitants as it is today. Because you have burned incense and have sinned against the Lord and have not obeyed him or followed his law or decrees or stipulations, this disaster has come upon you as you now see. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 8, written just a few years after what we just read there. So chronologically, Daniel is taken captive at 605 B.C. Jehoiakim and, who is the king, and Ezekiel are taken captive at 597 B.C. So now, five years into Ezekiel's captivity, he is given a vision of what is still going on in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to be completely and utterly destroyed in six years after Ezekiel writes chapter 8 of Ezekiel. And God wants him to know why I'm going to destroy it, why I'm going to send Nebuchadnezzar, why he's going to level this temple. So he picks him up, you'll see in this vision, he takes him from his captivity in Babylon, he's sitting there with the elders of Israel who have been taken captive, and he's going to lift him up in his spirit, and he's going to take him over to Jerusalem and lower him and allow him to see what is still going on in the temple. Verse 1, in the sixth year of the sixth month on the fifth day, which is 592 B.C., while I was sitting in my house and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, he's in Babylon, the hand of the sovereign Lord, and we see Adonai most, multiple times here in this chapter, the ruler and master that we see as Kyrios in the New Testament. So we see in the Hebrew, Adonai Yahweh came on me there. Verse 2, I looked and I saw a figure of a, a, like that of a man. This is Christ himself, pre-incarnate Christ, coming to Babylon to pick up Ezekiel. From what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire, and from there up his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. We saw that in Revelation 1, 12 through 15. Verse 3, he stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. The Spirit lifted me up between the earth and heaven, and in visions of God, he took me to Jerusalem to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court where the idol that provokes to jealousy stood. They are worshiping idols in Jerusalem when they're about to be taken captive and many Jews have already been taken captive. Verse 4, And there before me was the glory of the God of Israel, the Shekinah glory that we see last week in chapter 10 and 11 leaves just a few years after this. So verse 4, and there before me was the glory of the God of Israel as in the vision that I had seen in the plain. Then he said to me, Son of man, look toward the north. So I looked. And in the entrance of the north gate of the altar, I saw this idol of jealousy. He said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The utterly detestable things the Israelites are doing here, things that will drive me far from the sanctuary, chapter 10 and 11, but you will see things that are even more detestable. 
Then he brought me to the entrance of the court. I looked and I saw a hole in the wall. He said to me, son of man, now dig into the wall. So I dug into the wall and saw a doorway there. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked and detestable things they are doing here. So I went in and looked and I saw portrayed all over the walls, all kinds of crawling things and unclean animals and all the idols of Israel. In front of them stood 70 elders of Israel and Jezaniah, son of Shaphan, was standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. He said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of Israel are doing in darkness? Each at the shrine of his own idol? They say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Again, he said, you will see them doing things that are even more detestable. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and I saw women sitting there mourning the God of Tammuz. So they have gone all the way back to Genesis, to Nimrod and Semiramis and this, this mythical child Tammuz who in the mythos, mythical story dies and raises a gift from the dead in 40 days and they worship him because he has risen from the dead so we see Tammuz in our culture today that's where the tea originally comes from we see Tammuz in a, in a few days in Mendota, Illinois because Lent is born out of the worship of Tammuz who rose mythically from the grave, and that's the origin of Lent that people are still celebrating in Mendota, Illinois today. So, um, verse 16, he then brought me into the inner court, or I didn't read verse 15. He said to me, do you see this, son of man? You will see things that are even more detestable than this. He then brought me to the inner court of the house of the Lord, and there at the entrance of the temple between the portico and the altar were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east. They were bowing down to the sun in the east. He said to me, have you seen this, son of man? Is it a trivial matter for the people of Judah to do the detestable things they are doing here? Must they also fill the land with violence and continually arouse my anger? Look at them, putting the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will deal with them in anger. I will not look on them with pity or, or spare them. Although they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. So Ezekiel is lifted up right before Judah is taken down. He's taken into Jerusalem and he he first gets in the north gate that we read about later in Ezekiel where Christ himself comes in and we, we see an idol waiting for him. A false god, possibly Jupiter or something like that, which is, um, has been in the temple more than once. And then he takes him closer and he sees more idols of jealousy. He takes them closer and takes a hole through the wall and goes inside and women are bowing down, worshiping Tammuz in the temple built by Solomon to worship God. And the Shekinah glory of Christ is still there. 
and they're bowing down to Tammuz. And Jeremiah says they're making cakes to the queen of heaven and they're burning incense. And here in Jerusalem and Ezekiel, they've got their own incense. And we see all of these pictures today. We see this, um, this church that was built on the seven hills and the, and the golden cup. And we see them burning incense as, as they walk along. And we see all of the pictures and we call it Christianity today. We call it the worship of God. Turn back to Revelation 17. So you can Google on your phone the things that we've read so far in Revelation 17. I've got a video I can send you if someone wants it. Um, but Daniel says, Daniel 9, 26 and 27, that the last empire will be the same empire that destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, which is Rome. The revived Roman Empire is Europe today, and that's what it was called when the European Union was first formed. So it's called Europe today. The actual name is Europa. So Europa is Zeus raping Europa, raping this woman, this false goddess and this false god coming together sexually, forming Europa. So the name of this empire that will come is Europa. So on their stamps, on their money, on their walls, on their murals, they have Europa, this picture. And if you go to Strasbourg, or Strasbourg, France, which is the headquarters for the European Union, the building is a ziggurat. It's a spiraling tower hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars they've made this building. They have, a, they have a plaque there on the inside that says, many nations, one voice. The exact opposite of what God told them when he confused their minds. So they have a ziggurat that takes them back to the Tower of Babel. In front of them is this enormous statue with this woman, this prostitute, Revelation 17, riding on this beast which for them is Zeus and this false woman. It goes all the way back to Nimrod and Semiramis, and they are worshiping that today. And there are so many things happening in Europe that the latest statue in front of Strasbourg, I have never seen before, that the beast is, has two front legs, this woman with snakes coming out of her hair, you can look it up on your phone, is riding on the beast, and the beast's rear end is 12 rings, or 10 rings, which is Revelation 17. This seven horns and 10 kings that is going to be the beast and the nation or the entity that goes against Christ when he comes. All of these things are in Europe today and they're either mocking God or they're reading his word or they're simply fulfilling prophecy so we read on in verse 10. Verse 10 of Revelation 17. <clears throat> they are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. <clears throat> so these would be listed as far as John's time leading up to Domitian. And the final king is going to come, which will be the Antichrist. But he does... But when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. Verse 11, 
The beast who once was and now is not is the eighth king, the final king of this empire, the one Daniel writes about in multiple chapters. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. Verse 12. The ten horns, and it's interesting that they've got this beast with ten rings now, representing these ten horns of these ten kings. Verse 12. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but for an hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. So they actually have a statue now that represents these ten kings that are futuristic, that don't exist yet. So they have Europa, and they have this beast, and they have the prostitute on the beast, which is, she's hanging on for dear life, if you look at the picture of the statue, because she follows the beast. She does what he tells her to, and ultimately he is going to destroy her, turn to bat, or Turn to Daniel chapter 7, as he saw this long before John saw it. Daniel chapter 7. He sees this, these same events and the same things that John is describing in Revelation 17. We pick it up in verse 23 of Daniel chapter 7. Actually, let's go back to verse 20. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. Remember, we have numbers of seven and ten and a final king in Revelation. Um, the, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against God's holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days, this is the return of Christ, came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And that time, and the time came when they, God's people, possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is the fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and it will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times because he knows when he comes down he's got three and a half years left before he's locked up. So verse 25, he will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. We've seen that time period mentioned many times in Revelation. Three and a half years, so it's either time times and half times, or it's 1260 days, or it's three and a half years. Verse 26. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom 
and all the rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale. I kept the matter to myself. Turn back to Revelation 17. Revelation 17 and verse 13. They, these are the ten kings who will receive their authority from the Antichrist and from Satan. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them because he is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And with him will be his called chosen and faithful followers. And Daniel summarizes those verses in chapter 2 and verse 44. We read on. Then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. So that part of the mystery isn't a mystery. The, the prostitute sits on all the nations of the earth. It is this global, ecumenical, false religion. So we have today the reality that the Pope is meeting with Islamic leaders and Buddhists and Hindus and trying to bring everyone into one religion. There is one God. We all worship him. We all believe in him. There is one God and he will say we are all, everyone on planet earth is a child of God. So he is moving to make this happen as we speak. Um, verse 15, then the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute sits are, and this is this global, ecumenical, false church, peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. Turn to Matthew chapter 21, where 600 years after Ezekiel and Jeremiah, we find Christ angry multiple times. Whenever you see Christ angry in the scriptures, it is with false religion in the name of truth. And we see him angry throughout the book of Matthew, which anticipates the king and the kingdom. So in Matthew 21 and verse 12, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables and of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Money rules in religion. Christ rules in relationships. Verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read, and this is from Psalm 8, from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. So he spent most of his ministry in Capernaum, but when he went to Jerusalem, he wouldn't even sleep in the city because he was so disgusted with it. He would go outside the city to the Mount of Olives, to towns like Bethany, 
where he could rest and talk to his father. Turn to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, verse 1, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They say they represent God, Jesus is telling him, but they do not. Verse 4, They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and people, and put them on the people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. So you have all these religious duties of there's a place you can go to in Mexico where you've got to crawl on your knees to a church and bloody your knees and, and do all of these rituals to get closer to God. There are things, obviously, in our own community that you have to do this, you have to touch that, you have to eat this, things that are not in a relationship with God. Verse 5, everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries, this is scripture verses, they would attach to their robes, wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect at the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one Father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be a servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of the law, and you hypocrites. Listen to this statement for, against all religion. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. People are coming to religion today. I want to meet with God. I want to have a relationship with God. And they're saying, okay, do this and touch that. And here's a means of grace. And here's a means of grace. And there's a means of grace. And they never get to meet him because of religion. Drop down to verse 25. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but the inside is full of greed and self-indulgence. We have that in religion today, too. You can actually purchase indulgence. Verse 26, blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish. Repent and give your heart to God. And then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. These are the people who had the scriptures to that time, Turn to 2 Corinthians 11. We are in the church age, and these things are written in the church age, and they are still happening today. In fact, they are happening at the greatest level in the history of the church. 
So in 2 Corinthians, we have the apostle to the Gentiles describing what Jesus says. Jesus says, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look righteous, but you are not. In the inside, you are full of dead man's bones. So Paul is explaining that that's how Satan appeared when he said to Eve, did God really say? He would have been beautiful. He didn't come to Eve with a pitchfork and horns. He came to her as a salesman, as a religious person. You know, if you eat this, God already knows you'll be like him. You'll be wiser. You'll, you'll appreciate that you have done it. So religion that looks attractive, that looks righteous, it, it's kind of like um, we teach Jason. Um, we, try, we were on a walk yesterday just trying to go through things with him, how to uh, avoid being abducted. The person who would abduct him is going to be the friendliest person he meets. The person who abducts you spiritually is going to appear to be righteous. So Paul is addressing apostasy, which is the sign of the fall of the church. Ultimately, it is what we are looking at in Revelation 17. But in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 10, as surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you, God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. So the people that are under the orchestration of Satan, that are that are shutting the gates of heavens in men's faces. They're not atheists. They're not agnostics. They're standing behind pulpits with robes on saying that Jesus loves you and God loves you. And if you do this and this and that and that and that, he may accept you into heaven. It's going to involve money. It's going to involve you compensating that information. And that will also help you get into heaven. And Jesus and Paul, you can tell Paul is furious here. I will cut the ground out from underneath those people. Those were the people who hated Paul. The atheists didn't hate Paul. The people who knew nothing didn't hate Paul. The people who had religion and profit from religion, that's who hated Paul. Turn to Galatians chapter 1. As Paul is, wherever Paul went, he was followed by people that said, we represent Christ too. In fact, we're with Paul. And they would teach them to go into religion and the things that we're looking at. And Paul immediately writes a letter back to these Galatian churches, verse 6 of chapter 1. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if I, 
the Apostle Paul, or we, an Apostle Paul, or Peter, or John, or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I'm running late so you can look at those places where his primary disciple, Timothy, where he writes to him and he says that in the last times, which we're living in, people are going to be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, haters of the truth, disrespectful to their parents, and he's talking about the church in the last days. He says in his first letter to Timothy, he said there's going to be false religions where the people preaching, masquerading as angels of light, their consciences have been seared with a hot iron and they're demonic. And he says they're going to teach not to eat certain foods. And they're going to teach some in that religion not to marry. And we go along today as accepting that's all Christianity. Um, so as we go to Revelation 17 and close out the chapter, we will see the destruction of this church by the Antichrist himself under the, the authority of Christ destroying this church which rose up at the midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist, where he says, okay, an end to this church. And he says in Revelation 13, I am God. So we pick it up in verse 16. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is that great city that rules over the kings of the earth. So we see that everything that is physical has spiritual behind it. So he is destroying spiritual Babylon here. God puts it into the heart of the beast. Let these people who for long before the tribulation, long into the life of the church, have taken these rituals and these means of grace and these Babylonian, when they took Constantinople and converted it to a cathedral for a church, they simply took Zeus and they put Peter and they, they took um, they took Semiramis or they, they took Aphrodite and they put Mary. That doesn't mean that, that we are not to love and share the gospel with those people, but it does mean that people that choose religion, choose religion, choose religion, that their ultimate fate is being burned by the Antichrist. When they will finally realize, when the, the, the leader of this false church will realize destruction is coming, and it's destruction to the church, so we have all of these, these things in going on in Europe today. Um, we have all of these 
pictures and statues and writings and and we have in America we have at the UN building a verse that ascribes it takes half of a verse from Isaiah and ascribes the United Nations and America that they will be the ones that will solve the world's problems. The part of the verse that they take out Isaiah 2:4 is that he will judge the nations. He is the one that is going to accomplish it. He is going to destroy false religion. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, it, it is always in the heart of a, a fallen human being to seek gratification rather than glory, to seek pleasure rather than purpose to be happy rather than to be holy. And most human beings will never realize that the only life in this present life is to follow your son. And the only possible way to have life after this life is to follow your son. So help us to be bold enough when our family members and co-workers and friends explain to us, you believe what you believe and I believe what I believe, help us to, to see that as an open door. Help us to take full opportunity and advantage of those times and those conversations. In Jesus' name, amen.